Welcome to you if you're visiting. My name's Kieran Carr. I'm the Associate Minister here. And great that you can join with us during this abiding time. Uh, my, my title today, the title I brought to the passage is uh, Unshakable Hope, uh, which I think is a good title to bring uh, to uh, New Year's Day or New Year's Sunday. I, I did a quick uh, search on Google to find out what people's hopes are, aka New Year's resolutions uh, are for uh, this time of year, and I came up with uh, exercise more, lose weight, appropriate after Christmas, uh, get organised, learn a new skill or hobby, and uh, the fifth one was live life to the fullest, whatever that means. Uh, But uh, I think any of you who have tried to set about New Year's resolutions know that these are far from unshakable hopes. Uh, These are quite uh, shaky indeed, uh, which is why today I want to start a new year by talking about a hope that is unshakable, totally unshakable. And uh, uh, if you looked at the reading, Romans, uh, you'll see that what Paul is talking about in Romans 5 are the benefits of Uh, particularly of justification. So if you look at your heading in your Bibles, it says the results of justification. In verse 1, he talks about um, being justified by faith. And then towards the end, in verse 9, he talks about being justified by his blood. So it's a passage about the benefits of justification, uh, which, of course, justification uh, is called by Martin Luther the chief article of the faith. It's the article, the doctrine of justification, he says, uh, the article on which the church stands or falls. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about it as a thing of surpassing greatness. He calls it the super thing, this, this doctrine, this truth that we're justified. What, what does that mean, justification? Well, not only that we've been forgiven, that's only half the deal. Uh, justification is that we've been made righteous. In other words, the doctrine of justification is that the Lord Jesus Christ was treated the way that a sinner who's guilty deserves to be treated, that was on the cross, so that we can be treated the way that he, the perfect man, should be treated. That's, that's the doctrine of justification. But then in Romans 5, he's saying, well, well I want to tell you about the benefits of justification. And, and he uses this phrase in verse 3. I'm not sure what it says in the NRSV. Hopefully it says what I've got here. He says, and not only that. Does yours, does yours say that? So, so not only is this really cool, but I want to tell you about something that's, that's equally cool, that's equally amazing. And the, one of the benefits, one of the things that's just as amazing on this doctrine on which the church stands or falls, this super thing of surpassing greatness... I want to tell you about something that's just as cool, and that is, verse 3, that we can boast in our sufferings. We can rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is really important because can you remember the parable of the four soils? That, that, That people have four different responses to hearing the word of God. And the second soil was about um, rocky ground. Remember the seed was put on rocky ground and it, 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 it shoots up really quickly, but then the sun kind of scorches on it and it withers and dies. And Jesus says this is what that means. Those who are on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy. There's that rejoicing when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. In the time of testing, in the time of suffering, they fall away. So not only is uh, 
rejoicing in suffering a uh, suffering a, a gift that Christians can have, it's also a test. It's a test of whether or not you're a good soil or bad soil. In other words, suffering can bring about two different responses. One response is that you wither and die and your faith falls away, like the rocky ground. That's a so-called Christian. That, that's one that receives it with joy, but in the time of testing falls away. But then there's the Christian who has this super thing, this thing of surpassing greatness, where they are able to rejoice in their suffering and they endure like the fourth soil. They persevere with the word and they produce a crop 30, 60 and 100 fold. And so being able to endure suffering and not just endure but rejoice in suffering is a distinguishing mark of an authentic Christian, that you're the fourth soil. It's a test. I was listening to... um, a speaker, a Christian speaker this week called Paul Tripp, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, we don't just suffer our circumstances, we also suffer our interpretation of our circumstances. In other words, the interpretation or knowledge that we apply to this thing that we're suffering, the lens with which we see what, what, the, the, what we're experiencing in this suffering has the power to either make it a whole lot better or we bear fruit and we're able to rejoice and be fruitful, or the lens that we have has the power, like the second soil, to make us wither and die. So we don't just just suffer um, our experience of suffering, we suffer our interpretation of our experience. And that's kind of what Paul's saying in verse 3. He uses the word, he says, we rejoice in our suffering knowing See, that's talking about our lens, the lens that we have. We rejoice in our suffering because of the lens that we have and how we're interpreting the suffering that we're experiencing. And so what we're going to do today uh, is we're going to look at what this idea of rejoicing in suffering, because it's a distinguishing mark of an authentic Christian. And we're going to look at three things. And the first thing uh, I want to talk about is what rejoicing in suffering is not. What, what he's not talking about. So firstly, rejoicing in suffering is not stoicism. So a stoic, uh, recently I've heard um, commentators uh, on the news say that, you know, the COVID 2020, we're going to need to be stoic, Australia, we're going to come, we're going to need to be stoic in, in 2021. Uh, here's a quick definition of a stoic, okay? Dictionary definition, a person who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. But if you look at verse 3, Paul doesn't say we rejoice, I'm saying rejoice, it's boast, even though we're suffering. He doesn't say we rejoice even though we're suffering, he says we rejoice in our suffering, Because see, what a Stoic says is, don't let it get to you, just keep calm, carry on, stiff up a lip, Uh, big boys don't cry, big girls don't cry, don't let it get to you, just keep on keeping on. And sometimes we've imported that idea into Christianity. Sometimes we think that's what it means to rejoice in suffering. Well, you know, we say to someone who's suffering, well, everything happens for a reason, Uh, or someone dies, well, I'm sure they're in a better place. You know, these kind of band-aids that, that, that we put on to stifle our suffering, to, to deny it. And there's even a hymn uh, that, that borders on this. It says, at the cross, at the cross, 
where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. And now I'm happy all the day. As if becoming a Christian gives you like this immunity to suffering and to sadness and to difficulty. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. I mean, you need look no further than Job, right? Super rich dude, amazingly blessed life. And then what, what happens? It all goes completely pear-shaped. Uh, his circumstances take a massive nosedive. Uh, he loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. And does he just go, mm, I'm happy all the day? No, what does he do? He tears his clothes. He falls down on the ground. He covers himself with sackcloth and ashes and he doesn't speak for seven days. And you know what it says at the end? In all this, Job did not sin. In all this, Job did not sin. He's weeping, he's mourning, he's wailing. Which means rejoicing in suffering can't mean being happy all the day and just being immune to grief and loss and sadness. Friends, that's the prosperity gospel. Uh, That is a gospel that is popular in the church that we'll be happy all the day, and it's alive and well, but, but it's not true. And so part of what Stoicism does is it causes us to kind of suppress our true emotions, like you kill that part of yourself that feels the loss and the pain so that you can make it through. But that's not, that's not rejoicing in suffering. It's not Stoicism, but friends, it's also not masochism. Do you know what a masochist is? A dictionary definition says it's a person who enjoys an activity that appears to be painful or tedious. You you enjoy the pain. You you enjoy the tedium. tedium. But see, Paul doesn't say we rejoice because of our sufferings. It's not like we go, oh, yes, this is what, I love this. We rejoice because of our sufferings. No, it's it's not masochism. And yet some of us wear our suffering like, like it's a badge of honour, like it's something that actually sets us apart and makes us better or superior than to others. Listen, listen to this hymn, which, which taken the wrong way could, could kind of be a bit masochistic. It says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. Element of truth in it, but, but you could twist that to, I'm just, man, I'm just so much better than all these weaklings over here. They've got no idea what real suffering is. Nobody knows. I'm a, you know, I'm a hero. I'm a martyr. Uh, I'm a different class of human being because that this suffering kind of sets me apart and puts me on a different plane to everyone else. So Paul doesn't say we rejoice in spite of our suffering, which is a stoic approach. He doesn't say we rejoice because of our suffering, which is a masochistic approach. So let's talk about now the second point. Let's talk about what rejoicing in suffering actually is. And we know that from looking at Job that it's not um, being immune to experiencing grief and loss. We know that from Job we, Job, we know that from the Lord Jesus, and we know that from the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, 
but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. So we do experience grief, but not only do we not need the suffering to go away for us to rejoice in it, not only are we able to suffer in the midst of rejoicing, but Paul is actually saying the suffering enhances our rejoicing. It actually serves our joy. And this is why it's such a thing of surpassing greatness, that, that suffering can actually enhance our joy. We're driven into it and we understand it better and we latch onto it more firmly. So let me show you these two sides. That firstly, Christians really do suffer. Okay? Just think about it with me for a sec. The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God at Christmas, he, he experienced eternal glory, no suffering or pain for all eternity. And then he entered into our muck and into our mess in a sinful world. Just imagine if all you've ever experienced is glory and paradise and for all eternity, and then you get plunged into the, mech, the, the muck and the mess of this world. That's not going to make your suffering easier when you know what paradise is like, when you've experienced the glory of God. And so the more familiar you become with the goodness of God, the more the badness of of this world is going to affect you, is going, to, is going to hurt you. The closer that you come to the Lord Jesus, the more the brokenness of this world is going to break your heart. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says, I will remove from them their heart of stone. And part of the, the characteristic of a heart of stone is that it's unmoved by suffering. It's unmoved by sin. And I will put in them a heart of flesh. And a heart of flesh is, is sensitive and more impacted by suffering, more impacted by those things. So there's in a sense in which uh, coming to Christ, getting to know Christ more, actually increases our grief and our capacity to be moved. And I know for me personally, as I've grown in my walk with Christ, that I've cried more and I've let the devastating news of a four-year-old friend, you know, friend's four-year-old son being taken away by cancer absolutely devastate uh, me and, and let that get to me. Uh, and and that, that's actually what happens as we come closer to the Lord Jesus. We experience uh, even more suffering, but, but the suffering enhances our joy. In verse 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings because, or knowing something. And there's way too much in here. This is verse 3, and he goes through it into... Um, three to five and beyond, and there's so much to unpack. But, but the thing that I want to foc- focus on, of, of one of the foundations for why we can um, rejoice in our suffering, what it's built on, is verse five, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. This is one of the reasons we can rejoice in our sufferings. And so the idea here is that uh, one thing that can happen through our suffering is that the love of God goes from being this abstract concept that only uh, is up here to something that is a living, experienced reality by the Holy Spirit in, in our hearts. You see, verse 8 gives us um, the definition of God's love. It's like the dictionary definition. This is a memory verse, right? Romans 5 verse 8. It's one of the steps on the Romans road. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? And, and we know that definition up here, but what verse 5 is saying is that the Holy Spirit pours that out 
into our hearts so that it becomes a lived reality and and, and experience. Not not just something we know subjectively, but something that we experience uh, and, and that warms our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me try and give you an illustration that I've used before of how suffering actually enhances our joy, that God can use suffering to enhance our joy. And and it's the story of a farmer who owned an orchard in a valley that was full of orchards. And one year the the drought was harsher than all of the rest and and yet his trees were verdant and green and fruitful uh, and, and much more so than all of the surrounding orchards in the valley. And so the other farmers' trees were like brown, they were dying, and, and so they got together and, and they, they came to him and they asked him, like, what's your secret? And he, he said this, he said, my trees can go for another four weeks without water because when they were young, I often withheld water from them so that their roots were forced to drill down deeper to find water. So while other trees are dying, mine are drinking from a much deeper source. So do you see what's going on here? That, that the suffering, the withdrawal of um, water from the plant forces it to go down deeper to a, to a deeper source. And this is an image that the Bible uses uh, over and over again in different ways. So think of how God led the Israelites through uh, the wilderness for 40 years, right? And in Deuteronomy, he tells them why. He says, I brought you there to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but where's the life? But, by, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he did it to teach them to enhance their joy. You look for joys in bread, and I'm telling you that there's a deeper source of joy that's more satisfying and more enduring, and that's the word of God. Right? And, that's, and, and then you fast forward to Jesus in the wilderness, um, which is at the start of Matthew and Luke's gospel, right? And he's in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil comes to him and he says, hey, look, there's a rock. You must be pretty hungry. Why don't you turn it into, into bread? And, he, and Jesus, says, again, he says, that's not my source of joy. I have a deeper source of life. And that's that he quotes the same scripture. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is my joy. This is my sustenance. This is my life. This is a continual image that um, the Bible keeps coming back to. Um, you know, in Philippians 4, that we, we went through a series on Philippians 4 recently. And Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Wow. I've learned the secret of contentment, whether in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I have sent my roots down into a deeper source. And then in Galatians, he talks about, sorry, I'm riffing on all these images, but he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? So here's another, um, what would you call it, botanical uh, image of a tree. And, And the tree bears fruit, through the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is the water of life, the fountain of life. And when you remove other sources of joy, that tree sends its roots down deeper into the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and bears more fruit. One last image. John 15. My father is the gardener and you are the, bran- you're the vine. He cuts off the branches that don't bear fruit. Ouch! That's suffering, that's pruning, that's a withdrawal of lesser joys, lesser hopes, so that you bear down deeper into the word of God, 
into my life-giving spirit so that you bear more fruit, fruit that will last. So friends, this is all to try and paint a picture for how our suffering actually enhances our joy because it drives us deeper into the joy that will last and the joy that will truly satisfy our souls for eternity. So we've, we've looked at what suffering isn't, uh, rejoicing in suffering is not. We've looked at what rejoicing in suffering is, but now I want to ask finally, how does rejoicing in suffering happen? How do we rejoice in suffering? And I want to pick up on this word uh, in verse 4, character. Uh, Paul uses it in verse 4, but before that, before character, he says suffering produces perseverance, right? So before you get to character, you need perseverance, which means that character doesn't happen automatically. This is not like a fait accompli. It's just going to happen for you automatically. No, you need to persevere. You need to stick with God. You need to send your roots down deeper into God's word. You need to obey. You need to look to him and trust in him and persevere through that suffering with the knowledge of his goodness. So how does rejoicing in suffering happen? Well, it has to do with something that we know. There's a knowledge that we need because look at verse 3 we boast in our sufferings knowing dot 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 so we have these lenses on in other words there's a particular knowledge that you need to apply in order for you to be able to rejoice in your sufferings or to put it another way around the reason you can't rejoice in your sufferings and you're finding no joy is because there's a knowledge that you lack you haven't got the right lenses on you, you're, you're suffering not just your circumstances, but uh, your interpretation of the circumstances. You need this knowledge, not just in here, but deep down in your, in your heart, and not just in a classroom context like this, but in the heat of battle. And friends, this is also why, personally, I need brothers and sisters, because when you're in the heat of battle, you need brothers and sisters to tell you these, these things when you're, when you're knocked down and you're down for the count, to remind you, of the, of the truth and to get your right lenses on for what's happening to you. So he says we need to know something. Well, what, what do we know that leads to rejoicing in suffering? Look at verse 3. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So let's unpack this word character, okay? It's, this is part of the knowledge that we need to be able to rejoice in suffering, that our suffering produces character. And the Greek word is dokumene, and it's a beautiful picture that I want you to stick in your head when, when you see the word character uh, in the Bible. It has the idea of being tested and refined by fire. That, that's character. And, and it's an image that comes up in the Bible quite a bit. So in Job um, chapter 23, verse 10, he says, When God has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So the character is, is the product that you get when you put gold in the fire and it comes out as gold. That's character. Um, Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And then in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, Peter says, These sufferings that have come are to prove the genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold. It's even more precious than gold. You think about how much time we put into to riches. and Well, this is more precious than gold, your faith. 
And so that that may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, so this is an image of, of gold that is refined by fire. So you've got this chunk of earth, right? Dig it out. We're a mining city, right? We're a mining state. You get it out of the ground, but there's precious gold in there, but there's also all these impurities and, and dross mixed in, and they're all mixed in together. And the only thing that will tear them apart so that you can burn up all the dross and get rid of that and so that you can end up with the pure, beautiful gold is to put that thing into a blazing furnace, a blazing hot furnace, uh, uh, Leslie said she comes from a gold mining family and not only is that what they do but they crush it as well to separate them out crush those that, that, so, so that you can get rid of the dross and you end up with the gold so here's, here's the idea your heart and my heart is a mixture of all different hopes and goals and dreams fundamentally There's your hope in God through the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's more precious than gold. But then there are all these other hopes which are dross. They won't actually last. They won't actually endure through the fire. And they won't actually satisfy you unto eternity. And so the problem with our hearts is that we cling to those hopes which are actually dross and we consider them to be non-negotiable, things that we can't live without, and we hold loosely to the one hope that does satisfy, that does last, and that does fulfill, which is the hope of God and, and the Holy Spirit and the treasure that he's put in jars of clay. But when you go through the fiery furnace, you begin to realise something you begin to realise that these hopes that you think that you, you can't live without, that, you, that, that are your source of life, you begin to realise they, they can't stand the heat. They can't stand the heat. And they won't stand the heat on Judgment Day when it's all tested by fire, Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse 3. They can't stand the heat. And this hope that you don't really care about, that you're not drawing life from, your hope in God and the gift of the Spirit and His love is the only thing that satisfies and is the only thing that can last. So if I have a major accident and the doctor says to me, Kieran, look, everything's going to be fine, but look, I'm sorry to say uh, you're never going to be an Olympic uh, figure skater. I go, sweet! That was not in my plans. That was not a hope. I, did, I was not hoping to be an Olympic figure skater. So, so that is good news. But if the doctor says, look, uh, Kieran, everything's going to be fine, but I'm sorry, you're never going to be able to play guitar again. Well, that was something I was planning on doing. I, I, was, hoping, I was hoping that that was something that I was going to do. If I was hoping to be a rock star, which secretly is, was one of my main ambitions, whenever someone asks me if you weren't going to be a preacher, you play guitar and do all that. If, that. if that's my hope, right, and that's where I'm drawing life from, now I'm devastated. So suffering, the fiery furnace of suffering, it actually goes after your hopes, the things that you're drawing life from, the things that you're hoping in, and it tests them by fire. It might be your smarts, it might be your good looks, it might be your kids, it might be your career, whatever you're drawing life from. 
that, that, that suffering tests those things by fire. And these are all things that we all hope in and they're incredibly vulnerable, especially if you're building your life around that thing, which we all do. And especially if you're drawing your identity from that thing, which we all do. Because our hearts are a mixture of divided hopes. But Paul in Colossians 3 verse 3 says this, Your life is now hidden with Christ. It's hidden with Christ in God. That's where your life is. That's where the roots are. That's where your heart has all these roots. That's where your heart is supposed to latch itself onto, to tear itself off all those other hopes. And your life is actually hidden with Christ in God, which means that if your life is in your career or in your family or in your kids turning out a certain way or you having a particular happy kind of life or or leisure, uh, lots of leisure time, whatever it is, if your hope is in those things, it's not safe. It's vulnerable and it won't stand the test of the fire, both in this life and on Judgment Day, the judgment suit of Christ. But if your life is hidden with Christ in God, if that's where you've, you've learned to draw your life from, if you've learned the secret of contentment, whether in plenty or in want, it's hidden, it's invulnerable, it's protected, it's safe, which makes you secure. It makes you stable, it makes you unflappable, it makes you joyful and peaceful and full of the fruit of the Spirit because it's hidden with Christ in God and no one can get there. It's the ultimate safe. But what Paul is saying is that we only learn this through suffering. It's only through suffering that you begin to realise how unreliable these, these hopes are, these, these lesser hopes are. And how, how, in some cases, how miserable they're making you because you're enslaved to them. And they won't satisfy you, they won't last. I think this is what John Newton learned uh, in a hymn that I want to share with you. Obviously, his most famous one is Amazing Grace, but I've drawn great comfort uh, from this hymn uh, that he tells a story. It's called These Inward Trials. I encourage you to look it up. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow, there's a good New Year's resolution, in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. This is the furnace. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blustered my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. And here's the important bit. These inward trials I employ from pride and self to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy 
that thou mayst find thy all in me. This is how we can rejoice in sufferings. Sufferings enhances our joy because we find the pearl of great price that thou may find thy all in me. And a person who finally gets this, who's driven their roots down to a much deeper source, the word of God, the spirit of living water, is like the tree in Psalm 1 planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is someone who has incredible emotional stability and and security and joy and the fruit of the Spirit, no matter the season, no matter the circumstances. And a person who has persevered for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, God says in Isaiah 61 verse 3, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's who we're becoming. And that's why we can rejoice in suffering. Let me finish with a famous story you'll know. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar, made a great big idol. He said at the sound of the zither and the flute and the lyre and everything, you bow down to the idol and they refused to do it. And then he brought them in front of him. He was outraged. He said, I'll give you one more chance. Do it again. And they didn't do it. So he prepared a fiery furnace. It was already prepared and he made it seven times hotter because he was so outraged. And he threw them into the fiery furnace and so hot was the fiery furnace that the guards that threw him in perished, just throwing them in. And then from a safe distance he looks in to see, to see if they were writhing and, uh, and, and in all kinds of agony and pain. But that's not what he saw. He saw them walking around calmly and unscathed, completely unscathed. And then he saw something else, didn't he? He looked in and he saw there weren't three people there, there were four. And the fourth one looked like the Son of God. He's walking there with them. And in Isaiah 43, God promises his people and he promises you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Which means that when you're in the fiery furnace of suffering, it means you're able to rejoice. If you remember that Jesus is with you, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And not only is he with you, he went ahead of you. He went into the fiery furnace before you. Though he was as diamonds, though he was as gold, though he did not need any refining, he went to the cross and God didn't go with him. Because when he cried out, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went there alone so that we could know that the fiery furnace is not for our punishment, but it's for our purification. 
He went there so that all that the fire does is purify us and make us as diamonds and as pure gold. And so when you're in there, he's saying to you, fear not, I am with you, I love you. All that's going to happen through this is that your dross is going to be burned away and you're going to come out as refined, refined as fire, pure gold. You're going to gleam. It's be, it'll be for the display of his splendor. That's all that's going to happen. And Paul is saying the degree to which you get this, you really know it, the degree to which the Holy Spirit emblazons that on your heart, you'll rejoice in your sufferings because you know. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even by the fire of your spirit, you would emblazon these precious truths on our hearts because you know how much we need them, Lord. You know how quickly we lose hold of these things in the fiery furnace. And so please help us to believe what you say. In the words of John Newton, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free, to break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. Help us to meditate on these things so that we can become more than conquerors. Refine us, Lord, as pure gold, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.